Some of you may have heard of the poet John Donne. One day John Donne was lying in bed and he heard a bell ringing. It was a funeral bell. And it prompted him to write this. This bell ringing softly for another says to me, you must die. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. John Donne took that funeral bell for someone else as a wake-up call for himself. And he encourages us to do the same. And in the passage we're going to look at this morning, Jesus gives us a wake-up call. As we listen in on his message, he tells us to get ready and stay ready. In the previous part of his sermon, Jesus told the crowds in front of him not to waste their worry. He told them to be concerned about the right things, honoring God, being concerned for his kingdom. And now this morning we pick up in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. You'll find that in the church Bibles on page 1045. And we'll follow this through to chapter 13, verse 9. First of all, in chapter 12, verses 35 to 40, we find the call to be ready. about 10. They had no idea what day he'd be back. Never mind what time for them. But when he did, the only way to be ready in that situation was to be always ready. Jesus is using this picture to illustrate the readiness we need to have as we wait for him to return. He has promised that he's coming back. But he has also made it clear that only God the Father knows the date and time of Jesus' return. So for you and me, Jesus' return is certain. The timing of his return is uncertain. The only way for us to be ready is to be always ready. We'll see in a few moments what it means to be ready. We'll see what readiness looks like in someone's life. But before that, Jesus talks about the consequences of being ready or not ready. First, he sets out the positive. There will be reward for those who are ready. Look at verse 37. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table. And will come and wait on them. 
It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. This is a remarkable picture. It would have been remarkable for Jesus' first audience as well. The master serves the servants. This was ne- would never have happened in ancient society. It's pretty unheard of today too. And remember, Jesus is using this story to illustrate his own return. He says, when I return, I will gather those who are ready and there will be a party. We sang about it earlier, the wedding supper of the Lamb. But the song didn't mention the detail Jesus gives us here. He will serve his faithful servants. We know Jesus served his disciples when he was on earth, first time around. Philippians says that when he came, he took on the very nature of a servant. His whole mission was one of service. He came to die for our salvation. And we all know how he washed his disciples' feet. He did it to illustrate that he came as a servant. We all know that picture. But this little parable tells us that amazingly, our risen Lord is not finished serving his people. When he returns as the risen, triumphant king, he will still serve his people. He's Lord of the universe. He's worthy of all of our worship. And yet, to his faithful people, he will always be the serving master. It's not hard, surely, to serve a master like that. Jesus has given a call to be ready. He has promised there will be reward for those who are ready. Now he spells out the negative. If we're not ready all the time, we're not ready. Verse 39. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is a new illustration. And the point is, no one wants to be caught out. If you or I knew a thief was coming at 2 a.m. on Tuesday morning, we'd be waiting with our cricket bat at 2 a.m. on Tuesday morning. But that's not how it works. None of us want our house burgled, but we can't be on that kind of alert 24 hours a day. Every day. We have to sleep. We have to go out and do things. And so often, we get caught out. When we arrived at the airport in Florida recently, the announcer kept telling us that the U.S. national security alert was at level orange. I don't know what the other levels are. I imagine orange is just below red. So I suppose I should have been quite alert, but not overly alert. But in practice, those kinds of things lose their effectiveness very, very quickly. We can't be on high-level alert all the time. We have other responsibilities. We have things to focus on. We can't put our life on hold indefinitely. No matter how bad the last terrorist attack was, we all eventually relax. And that's when the next attack comes. 
It's almost never expected. Even if the alert level is kept at orange. Here in verse 40, Jesus is speaking about his return. He is the son of man. And he says, you must be ready. But he also says, I'll come when you do not expect me. How can we fit those two things together? Well, clearly Jesus understands it's not possible to stand looking up at the sky all the time. We can't be ready in that way. We have to sleep, cut the grass, go to Tesco, cook our dinner. It's not possible to have our minds focused on Christ's return every minute of the day. Now, certainly there are things we can do to be more focused on his return. When we come together as believers, we can remember together that he's coming soon. But even so, Jesus says here, I'll come when you do not expect me. Maybe you'll be hoovering the living room, painting the hallway, picking up your kids from school. So then, how do we obey Jesus' call to be ready all the time? As we've said, clearly he has something else in mind than staring up at the sky 24 hours a day. There must be some other way to be ready. And sure enough, in verses 41 to 48, Jesus shows us the way to be ready. He gives us the sign of those who are ready. Faithful service. In verse 41, Peter asks Jesus a question. Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? In other words, are you talking now to us disciples, those who are committed to you, or are you talking to the uncommitted crowds around us? The beginning of chapter 12 told us Jesus' audience here is a crowd of many thousands, including his close circle of disciples. And Peter wants to know if this is a challenge to disciples or non-disciples. Is it something Peter needs to be concerned about or not? But notice Jesus doesn't give him a direct answer. Instead, Jesus says, let me use an illustration to describe the person who's ready and to describe the person who isn't. Then you decide for yourself, Peter, whether you need to be concerned about this. Look at verse 42. The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Suppose the servant says to himself, My master has taken a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the man servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Very simply in this little story, Jesus describes two servants. When the master comes back, neither servant is expecting him at the moment he comes. They had no way of knowing the day or the hour. Neither servant is expecting him. They are both caught unawares. But one servant is ready and the other is not. 
And the difference is this. The servant who is serving the master faithfully is ready. The one not serving him faithfully is not ready. It's as simple as that. Being ready is not about staring up at the sky all the time. It's about living to serve the king every day. Carrying out the responsibilities he has given us. And carrying them out for his glory, for his kingdom. So yes, you or I might well be asleep when he comes. Or cleaning the car or watching TV. But the question is, not what are we doing the moment he arrives, but what life are we living when he arrives? Is it a life of faithful service? Verse 42 says this particular servant was given the responsibility of providing the other servants with their food every day. If the master returns and catches him doing this faithfully, then he has been found ready and he's given greater responsibility. That's what verse 44 says. It's hard to be certain what exactly this will mean. But we can say that when Jesus returns, his people aren't suddenly going to become passive for all eternity. Life in the new heaven and earth isn't going to be a case of sitting on a recliner all day. Back in the Garden of Eden, Before sin ever entered the world, God gave Adam work to do. So work is not a result of sin. Sin has made it hard. Sin has made it often unpleasant. But we were created to be working, responsible beings. So eternity will also be about actively serving our king. Only then, of course, we'll be serving him without sin and without weakness. So here's the point. Those who are ready for Jesus' return are those men and women who are doing now what they will go on to do for all eternity. Faithfully serve the king. For all of us, that means being faithful to obey his commands. For some of us, it also means being a faithfully single Christian for him. For others, it means being a faithful Christian spouse for him. A faithful Christian parent for him. Faithfully looking after your parents. Faithfully delivering babies. Marking homework, driving a lorry, playing the guitar. Visiting your neighbor, leading a Bible study, whatever it happens to be. Being ready means doing whatever it is we do for the glory of God. As working for the Lord, not for men. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it. Not being ready is just the opposite. Disobeying his commands. Disregarding our responsibilities. Look again at verse 45. Suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. He then begins to beat the manservants and maidservants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. 
These verses are even more serious than they at first seemed to us. They are even more chilling than they at first seemed. Why? Because this servant thought he was ready, but he wasn't. In verse 45, he talks about my master. He thought he was ready, but his life showed that he wasn't. Back in verse 41, Peter asked if this teaching was for disciples or for unbelievers. Jesus didn't give him a direct answer. And now we know why. This teaching is at least partly to help men and women discern whether they're disciples or not. If Jesus had said this was for unbelievers, all those who thought they were disciples would have tuned out at that point. But Jesus wants them and he wants us to examine ourselves. Not everyone who thinks they are a disciple is a disciple. Disciples are those who are ready for their master's return. And only those serving him faithfully are ready. The rest, we're told, will be assigned a place with the unbelievers when he returns. This is not a new idea. Back in chapter 6, Jesus said every tree is recognized by its fruit. And he explained what he meant. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Jesus went on to say, the person who hears my words and puts them into practice will be the one who stands. In chapter 8 and chapter 11, he said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The sign of those who are ready for Jesus' return is their faithful service for Jesus now. The proof of the servant is in his or her service. It's not in a prayer they prayed 20 or 10 or 2 years ago. It's not in the 10 or 20 years they've sat in the church pew. Jesus is saying to these crowds and to us, don't assume you're in the kingdom because you think you're in. Evaluate your standing based on what the king himself says. Cut to pieces means severe punishment. Exactly how severe depends on how much you know. That's what Jesus says in verses 47 to 48. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. We need to be clear who Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about those who are not ready for Jesus' return. In other words, these verses are about unbelievers. They're not about Christians. But what we're told is that not every unbeliever is the same kind of unbeliever. We already know that some of these unbelievers will have thought they were ready. 
but they did not live lives of obedience and service to the master. So in fact, they weren't ready. And then in these verses, Jesus says, the degree of punishment unbelievers will receive depends on how much they knew. It's hard for us to be certain what is meant by many blows and few blows. But what is clear is that some account will be taken of whether the sin was done in ignorance or done in the knowledge that it was against the master's will. In the end, there are only two groups of people, those who are with Christ and those who are against him. But scripture also tells us that some who are with him will receive greater reward and some who are against him will receive greater punishment. The Bible doesn't really give us any more detail on this. Sometimes those who want to catch Christians out will raise the question of the desert island. You probably know the question that goes, what about the man or woman who lives and dies on a desert island? They never hear about Jesus. So how can a good God send them to hell? Verses 47 and 48 give us the answer to that question. Don't worry about the hypothetical person on the desert island. God knows how to deal with them fairly. Instead, worry about your own situation. You do know about Jesus. How are you responding to what you know? If you don't come to Jesus in repentance, you're in a worse position than that hypothetical person on the island because you know. Now Jesus addresses the rest of his sermon to those who are not ready. He brings two challenges. The first is in verse 49 through to chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus says, wake up to the truth about why Jesus came. Verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother in law against daughter in law. And daughter in law against mother in law. We're not used to Jesus talking like this. Bringing fire on the earth means bringing God's judgment. Why does Jesus say in verse 49, he wishes the fire were already kindled? Simply because until the fire of judgment falls, his Father in heaven is still being defied. His Father's authority is still being challenged. The most praiseworthy being in the universe is having praise withheld from him. No wonder God's Son wants the rebellion to be wiped away. He loves his Father more than anything else. In fact, he loves his Father so much, 
He is preparing to do his father's will by dying to save some of those rebels. That's what Jesus is referring to in verse 50. The baptism he has to undergo is his death. He's already had a water baptism back in chapter 3. So let's be clear on the picture here. Early in his ministry, Jesus made it clear that his first coming to earth was not to bring God's judgment on rebels. It was to receive God's judgment for rebels. The first time around, the fire of God's judgment fell on Jesus. At the cross, he took the judgment so you and I wouldn't have to. I think that's what T.S. Eliot meant when he said that we are redeemed from fire by fire. The fire that fell on Jesus redeems us from fire. But the second time around, when Jesus returns to earth, things will be different. Those who have not accepted him as their substitute will take the fire themselves. We all deserve fire. And if we reject God's grace in taking the fire for us, then we will take it ourselves forever. And that's why Jesus says he came not to bring peace on earth, but division. He does bring peace to those who accept him. But that's exactly what causes division on this earth. Jesus splits the world in two. We divide up the world according to geography or nationality or economics or politics. But in God's eyes, there's only one division that really counts. Those who are with his son and those who are not. So Jesus is not saying here that family ties are bad. God created family. But we need to understand that membership in the ultimate family, the family of God, may lead to division among our flesh and blood family. And some of us here know all about the pain that comes with that. If we remember the context of this talk about fire, maybe we can see the urgency of it. At the start of our passage, Jesus said, no one knows when he's coming back. Now is the time to get ready. This is the time of opportunity. We need to wake up to the truth about why Jesus came. And now Jesus drives his point home by giving two illustrations. First, look at verse 44. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately say, it's going to rain. And it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? To the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. Clouds from the west bring rain from the sea. To the south of Israel is the Negev Desert. Winds from the desert bring scorching heat. Everyone knew these things, and they ordered their lives accordingly. So, Jesus says, how is it 
You can be so clued in about the signs of the clouds and the wind and yet not figure out what my life, death and return mean for your future. Today we might say, how can you be so astute, so sharp when it comes to getting qualifications for yourself, making money, rising in your career, saving for the future? So sharp in all those things and yet fail to grasp the central significance Jesus has for your life. Wake up to the truth about why Jesus came and order your life accordingly. Jesus gives another illustration. Verse 57. Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, Try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. In this context, the context of this illustration, our adversary is God. He's the one we have wronged. And our judge is also God. He's the one who will pass sentence on us. God's officer is Jesus. He's the one commissioned to carry out God's judgment. And time is limited. We are on our way to the judge. So then, how are we to be reconciled to our adversary? Well, we've just thought about the answer. But this picture brings it into even greater focus for us. The good news, the gospel tells us that our adversary himself has paid the debt we owe him. And the judge has accepted the payment made on our behalf. God the Father, our adversary and our judge, has graciously paid our debt himself. It cost him his only son. But we have to respond to what God has done. We have to acknowledge our debt, our sin, And we have to trust in Jesus as our Savior, our debt payer. If we don't, then we pay the debt ourselves. And we will never be finished paying our debt. We will pay it for all eternity. That's the situation of the man in the illustration. If he gets thrown into prison, how can he earn the money to pay his debt? He will never get out because he'll never be able to pay his debt. Wake up to the truth about why Jesus came. Wake up to the urgency of your situation and be reconciled to God before it's too late. None of us, none of us like to hear things like this. So we tend to assume it doesn't apply to us. Maybe some of you are feeling that way. God isn't angry with me. He couldn't be my adversary. I can think of plenty of others who fit this, but not me. What debt do I owe to God? Some of the crowd listening to Jesus were feeling that way too. So they say, you know, Jesus, we think we know the kind of people you're talking about. Listen to this, Jesus. God must really have been angry with these people. 
Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. We don't know all the details of these incidents, but they were headline news at the time. Two tragedies of the time. And at least some in the crowd seem to think that because their lives are going fine, God must be pleased with them. But those, those people who were killed while offering sacrifices to God, well, that's a sign he wasn't pleased with them, right? But Jesus says that's not how it works. Don't let prosperity in the present blind you to where you stand with God. When tragedy hits someone, it's no sign one way or the other about their standing with God. You might be fit and healthy. You might be prospering in your family and your business. But unless you repent, you will perish too. And then Jesus adds another example of his own from the headlines. The crowd have mentioned a tragedy brought about by human hands, the Roman execution of some worshippers. Jesus adds what we would call a tragedy brought about by natural causes. A tower has collapsed and killed some people. Jesus says just because you escape tragedy when it falls on someone else, don't be fooled about your situation. In this life, tragedy can fall on the just and the unjust. Those in a right standing before God and those not. On the other hand, both the wicked and the just can lead apparently charmed lives. A person's amazing escape or rescue from danger doesn't say anything about their standing before God. Only those who repent will be in right relationship with God. Then Jesus says, let me tell you the real reason you're all still standing here alive. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because God is pleased with you. It's because he's being patient with you. Verse 6. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is Jesus' second challenge to those who are not ready. You are still alive only because of the merciful patience of God. Take your opportunity. Fig trees normally bear fruit every year. 
The owner of this one has found nothing for three years. He has given adequate opportunity. No one could fault him for cutting it down. Not only is it unfruitful, it's taking nutrients out of the soil. It's hindering the growth of the other trees. In a sense, God represents both the owner of the vineyard and the one who cares for the vineyard. He is both justly angry at unfruitful men and women. And at the same time, he is patient. He gives life-sustaining care, even to rebels. But sooner or later, time will run out. Our reading earlier from Second Peter said that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. But, Peter goes on, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. Jesus leaves this little parable open-ended. There is both urgency and hope for this unfruitful tree. The axe is ready to fall, but the axe has not yet fallen. If the tree produces fruit, it will live. And so it is with everyone who has not yet come to Jesus. You may not have tomorrow. You may not even have this afternoon. But God in his mercy has given you this moment to turn to him in repentance. As the Apostle Paul put it, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. How many of us spend our lives getting ready for exams, getting ready for a job, for marriage and family, holidays, retirement, but they never get ready for the rest of their eternal lives? You are still alive only because of the merciful patience of God. Take your opportunity. Jesus has called us to get ready and stay ready. He has reminded us of the urgency of getting ready. And he has promised blessing for those who show they're ready by lives of faithful service. And so we're going to close our service with two songs. The first calls us to come and see what Jesus has done. To come and bow down in worship. And the second song is for those who are ready to meet him. First of all, come and see and then there is a day.